We continue now our series in the book of Ephesians. We turn again to the third chapter. You will recall last time we dwelt on 3.1, especially 2 through 13, but it's necessary that we read 3.1 and then verse 14. Now let me explain why before we pray and read. You will notice that he begins verse 1 of chapter 3 with, for this reason. You will notice that in verse 14 he says, for this reason. And what the Apostle Paul has done is that after verse 1 he determined, well, before I can actually pray this prayer that I want to pray, I have to unpack this idea of the mystery that has been revealed of Gentile inclusion in the kingdom of God. And so he was going to pray in verse 1. His fertile mind went on to expound the mystery that we saw last time. And then he actually begins again for this reason to pray in verse 14. Is that clear to you? All right. Let's pray. Our Father, from this text this morning, teach us to pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. This is the Word of God. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And now in verse 14 to the end of the chapter, again he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory... He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. An old divine once said, cold prayers ask for a denial. And I don't think that the converted Paul ever prayed a cold prayer. We come now to the second of his two prayers in Ephesians. The first was found in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And there we asked, for what did Paul pray, and how does this teach us as believers to pray? Well, we want to ask the same thing this morning. While Paul's prayer is that of an apostle in a particular place in redemptive history, yet who can doubt that this is a model for our prayers? So what do we learn about prayer for the church from this prayer? How should this spur us on as believers in Jesus to be more fervent in our prayers? Well, I want to see several things with you in this passage, and the first is this. This prayer of Paul's in chapter 3 teaches us to pray intensely. Pray intensely. That's first. 
You can tell a lot about yourself, about your growth and grace, your focus by how you pray and for what you pray. The cares, the concerns, the motivations, in a word, your heart is displayed in your prayers or lack thereof. Looking at Paul's prayer, his motivation, as we see in verse 1 and again in verse 14, is that he's praying for this reason. Now, what reason? Uh, That is to say, because of everything that I have thus far expounded to you from these opening chapters, I'm praying, and especially because I love you, the church, and because of this emphasis in Ephesians in my letter to you, because of the church, for this reason, I am praying. And we see that he prayed intensely because as we come to verses 14 through 19, 14 through 19 are one long uninterrupted sentence. It's the Apostle Paul just running on like like Niagara. Uh, One word after another, one cascading beautiful prayer after another. And as we see that he prayed out of much sincere love for his fellow believers, I ask you, do you pray in that way? You know, really, is it too much to ask that when we pray, we believe what we pray? Is it too much to ask that as we come before the living God, that we pray with intensity? Let me remind you of that quotation from Samuel Medley that I brought when we looked at Paul's first prayer. Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil but trembles when we pray. Do you believe that? And believing that will cause us to pray with intensity, don't you think? With hearts that really mean it. You know, how often in the Old Testament does the Lord say to his people, they followed him in form, but their hearts were far from him. Well, what we see here is a heart that is not far from him, but a heart that is intense and passionate in prayer. And that's the first thing we learn from Paul's prayer here, that we also should pray with that kind of intensity. But secondly, we learn that when we pray, we should pray reverently, reverently. Now, I recognize that that's not a word we hear much nowadays. Reverence is almost a thing of the past. But give thought into whose presence you're coming when you pray. Notice that he says here in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. He comes with reverence to the Father. Now, many postures are appropriate when we pray. I think it's a good thing that many of you get up early in the morning and you have a a nice special place in which you like to read your Bible and pray. Maybe it's a nice comfortable chair. Maybe it's something hard because you don't want to go sleep again. But you're there. You have your Bible before you and you'll stop and occasionally bow your head and you'll pray. I think that's great. But do you not see that there are times also in which there are matters that are just so intense you need to slip out of that chair and get on your knees? Posture is not an unimportant thing in prayer. When I was a boy, oh, I don't know, about 13 years old, I was sitting waiting for the service to begin one Sunday, and uh, Mrs. McWaters came by. Now, Mrs. McWaters was a lady, let me tell you. She was probably 80 years old, beautiful white hair, lovely skin and complexion. She carried herself with dignity, and she saw me slouching. 
She came and she straightened me up with some ferocity, I might add, (laughs) and made comments something to the effect, you are about to come into God's presence in worship. And that has stuck with me ever since. So if you see me slouch, you can remind me of Mrs. McWhorter's. Teaching children to bow their heads, to fold their little hands. You know, posture is extremely important. How wonderful for our little children to see dad and mom, at least occasionally, on your knees in prayer. Now that was not the usual posture for the Jew. The Jew usually stood to pray, but it was typical for Gentiles to kneel. And here is Paul, the Jew, who now identifies himself with these Gentile believers because there is one people of God, and he says, I kneel. Remember in Isaiah 45, the passage we read that's picked up by Paul in Philippians chapter 2 that tells us that the day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Apostle Paul says, let's kneel before the Father. Let's kneel before the Lord. Let's kneel in our prayers because that day is coming in which we will worship the Lamb. And so he bows not with an an unwilling heart, but a willing heart, knowing the day is coming in which there will be many who will willingly bow the knee, but there will also be those who do not. So do you kneel? That is to say, at least within your heart, is that your posture? One of utter humiliation before God, remembering who God is. A good exercise for you this afternoon would be to turn to the 40th chapter of Isaiah and remember the character of God. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these things. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. This is the God before whom we are called to kneel in prayer. And so we bend the knee because we abase ourselves. We come in utter humiliation as sons and daughters of God in worship. The state of Paul's heart is displayed in his position. He comes boldly, but with a boldness associated with reverence and awe. Well, you say, there's so much that demands my attention. I find it very difficult to take time to kneel and pray. The king of the universe demands your attention. The needs of your fellow believers in Christ demand your attention. Prayer is not meant for monks. It's meant for real people living real lives, busy lives, hard lives, and God wants you to kneel and pray. He wants you to do that in your address, right where you live. So we pray intensely, but we also pray reverently, remembering the God before whom we come. By the way, 
We model that. We attempt to model that in our services of worship. And our children can learn to pray from dad and mom, but also by hearing pastors and elders lead in prayer. Third thing we learn from this about prayer is that we should pray confidently and boldly. Confidently and boldly. Now everything that he prays from verse 14 on in this prayer is a bold prayer and we'll be looking at it. But I simply want you to know that even though he bows the knee, he bows the knee to the Father. That's what he says. To the Father. Now that's bold, isn't it? This is the king of the universe, the creator of all things, the one who sustains all things, and yet he bows before him as his Father, loving, kind, tender, gracious, gentle Father, and therefore his prayer is a bold prayer. The whole family of God derives their name from him, I think is what Paul is actually saying here. It's a reference to the church, to the Father's family. The whole family of God bows the knee together. Paul is referring to our adoption and the adoption of Gentiles into God's family. But I ask you, do you not find your greatest incentive to pray right here? That God says to you, I'm not distant and far off. Yes, I'm transcendent, but I'm imminent. And this God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being is for you in Christ. And he promises that he is your heavenly father. That he is kind and gracious and compassionate to you. Is that not your greatest incentive? Remember that Jesus, the unique Son of God, called him Abba. And now because we are in union with Christ, the Spirit of God indwells us crying out, Abba, Father. Now he draws on what he said in chapter 2, verse 18. For through him, that is Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And again, what he says in chapter 3, verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And then he gives an example of bold praying. Confidence, utter and complete confidence. Do you remember that Martin Luther, at the height of the Reformation, in some of the most difficult times of persecution, went before the Lord and poured out his heart in prayer. Luther was a remarkable man. Do you know anything about his busy life? And yet he took four hours of the day to pray. The best part of the day that would be used for work, he took to pray. Amazing. And once someone overheard him pray and wrote a letter and said, I heard him pray. And you know, he prayed with all the confidence of a child before his father. He prayed in such a way that it was as if he didn't believe there was anything he asked that wouldn't be accomplished. That's bold praying. And that's what Paul is saying to us here. So do you pray boldly? Do you pray that way? If not, why not? Isn't God your father? And then fourthly, we learn that we are to pray God-centered and Christ-centered petitions. We are to bring God-centered and Christ-centered petitions when we pray. Now, there are several petitions in this prayer, and I want us to look at them. What are the God-centered, Christ-centered petitions that the apostle prays for the Ephesian believers that we really should be praying one for another? Well, the first is that we will be strengthened with God's power. Verses 16 and 17, look at it. 
that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend, and so forth. So the first thing He prays for is power. That you recognize that God is rich in attributes, that He is a powerful God, and He can answer your petitions. He prays for divine strength for fellow believers who are failing and need that strength. And that that strength may dwell in them. That's the word he uses, dwell in them. As one of the old writers put it, Paul prays to the Father that Christ by His Spirit will be allowed to settle down in their hearts and from His throne there both control and strengthen them. Now tell me who doesn't need this that's here today? What believer does not need for other believers to be praying for you that God will give you strength that will settle down and dwell deep within your heart? Is there anyone that doesn't need that? Do you think perhaps that Miriam Ibrahim in Sudan needs us to pray that God will give her that strength within her heart? Do you suppose that Pastor Saeed, as he suffers in the prison in uh, Iran, needs that God's people pray that? Yes, let's range far and wide in our prayers, but tell me, don't you know people right here now sitting next to you, near you, that you love and care about, they need that you pray for them, that God's own strength dwell and settle down in their souls. That's God-centered, Christ-centered petition. There's another petition here. He prays that we might know Christ's love. He says in verse 17, so that... Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He prays that you may know the love of Christ. Now there are two metaphors that he uses here. The first is rooted, that you may be rooted. That's a botanical image. You're like great redwood trees in your love one for another, a great forest of immovable trees. But trees do not live without roots, and Christians do not live without their lives being deep in love. And then he uses another image, that you may be rooted and that you may be grounded or founded, which is an architectural image. You know, they taught us in school, don't mix your metaphors, but Paul didn't go to our schools. And he mixes metaphors all the time, and we're all the richer for it. Rooted and grounded, like a solid cathedral, like York Minster, or or like St. Stephen's in Vienna. Deep, solid roots and a powerful foundation. And you need that. Let me tell you, if you're not grounded and rooted in truth, grounded and rooted in love, when the hard things come, if you're not rooted, and if you are not grounded, that's your need and that's mine. Deep roots and powerful foundation, that's our need. Being strengthened to love in the body of Christ, because he says, with all the saints. You don't do this alone. 
Being strengthened to love in the body of Christ puts us in the way of knowing the love of Christ. And then the apostle, he attempts the impossible. He attempts to speak of the the vastness of the love that God has shown us in Jesus Christ. And as we are As we are rooted and grounded, we begin to see with one another the expansive mountain ranges of God's uh, immutable love, and, and, and we see it from the dizzying heights of prayer. And so he mentions four dimensions of the love of the Lord in verses 18 and 19. Look at it. May have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Four dimensions. John Stott put it this way. The love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind, Jew and Gentile, long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and high enough to exalt him to heaven. Do you see a parallel to what Paul says in the 8th chapter of the book of Romans? You remember how he ends that chapter and he says in verse 37 and following of Romans 8, Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Someone has remarked, whether you go forward or backward, up to the heights or down to the depths, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. And when you pray this way, and you begin to become rooted and grounded in this wonder of God's love for you in Christ Jesus, then you know it's going to sustain you through the hardest and through the most difficult of times. Several times I've read this illustration. I I wish I could trace it to its source, because I, I don't know. But after the period, of course, of the Spanish Inquisition... Napoleon invaded Spain, and in one of the prisons, his soldiers came upon a skeleton of a prisoner. Uh, The clothes had wasted away. There was no flesh any longer on the bone, but there was a chain, a manacle, around the ankle bone. Obviously, the man had not been given food nor water. He had been a Christian And he had been persecuted for the faith, and he had died there with that manacle chained around his ankle. But on the wall, the prisoner had had something to cut into the rock, and he made the shape of a cross. And at the top was the Spanish word for height, and below it the word for depth. On one arm of the cross was the word for length, and on the other was the word for breadth. So you see, this man, starving, nothing to eat, nothing to drink, dying, upon what did he think? What sustained him all the way to heaven? Well, it was his comprehension of the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Jesus Christ. Do you see that? Don't you see our need to pray for one another that we comprehend that? 
Because we're going to go through hard things too. Most of us won't be chained and die without food. But it's hard enough. He has another petition. He prays that we would be filled with all fullness. Verse 19, And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Knowing Christ's love transforms us, fills us, and insofar as we are given capacity, we are filled with wisdom, knowledge, truth, and the blessedness of God. A.W. Pink said, instead of counting upon the divine munificence, instead of availing ourselves of the fullness which there is in him, we limit the Holy One and think of him almost as though he were as poor as ourselves. But no, we can actually be filled with this fullness. You know these lines, O Jesus Christ, grow thou in me and all else recede. That's what he's praying. Grow thou in me and all else recede. Now can you not see that this along with word and sacrament, that this is the chief means that God has given us to keep us from sin? These prayers that we may be strengthened, that we may know the love of Christ, that we may be filled with the fullness of God, if those things are present and active in our lives, these are the things that God uses to keep the believer in Jesus from sin. Does that make sense to you? Yes? One of our old Presbyterian fathers gave a weird illustration of this. It's so weird, I'm going to read it to you. He says, A traveler, while passing through a desert, was overtaken by a storm. So violent was the tempest that he at last despaired of surviving it. Just as hope died within him, His eye was caught by a light that glimmered in the distance, and he hastened his steps to reach it. Arriving at the place where it shone, he sees an open house, entering which he finds himself in an apartment with a fire and a hearth and a seat placed by it. He sat down, and making himself as comfortable as possible, he felt happy at his escape from the storm that was still raging outside." On entering, he had seen nothing but what has already been noticed. But about midnight, happening to look around, he saw a dead body lying in the corner of the room. The corpse having begun to rise, as he looked at it, the poor man became dreadfully frightened. And as the dead was rising higher and higher, he rushed to the door to escape from the house. But the storm was still so violent that he dared not go out, and no choice was left to him but to return to his place by the fire. For a time the corpse was at rest, but he could not keep his eyes off the corner where it lay. And as he looked, it began to rise, and now higher than before. Again he sprung from his seat, but instead of rushing to the door, he this time fell on his knees." As he knelt, the dead body lay back again, and he ventured once more to take his seat by the hearth. He had not long been there when up again rises the corpse, and now still higher than formerly. So on his knees again he fell, observing that only while he was kneeling the dead body lay still. He rose not again from his knees till the day had broken and the shadows fled away. Uh, That's a parable. Do I really have to explain it? (laughs) 
this great weird parable. You see what it means? Okay, I'll make a comment. There it is. Sin. Dead. Dead in Christ. Dead. But you know how it rises up in the Christian heart, don't you? You keep your eyes on it, it's just going to rise all the more. It's when we're on our knees. Our focus is not there, but on the Lord that the corpse falls back down. These are the petitions you pray for one another that we are kept from sin. Did you notice in verse 16 that he says that we are to pray that these things are according to the riches of his glory? One old minister tells the story of a man who came to the king asking for something and the king gave him out of the abundance of his treasure. Your majesty, that is too much. The king answered, it may seem too much for you to take, but it is not too much for me to give. So it's not simply out of the riches of his glory, but according to the riches of his glory. You see the distinction? That he answers our prayers. Well, we're not done. There's a fifth thing. When we pray, we are to pray doxologically. Now, you know what a doxology is, children. We sing praise God from whom a doxology is praise. We are to pray in praise. And that's what he's doing in verse 20. It's as if he's, he's given his petitions, he doesn't have anything left to do but just fall on his knees again and worship. And so he worships and he says in verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And Paul loves superlatives. He likes to take the little word, the word hooper, the preposition hooper, from which we derive hyper, and make a word out of it. And he does it here when he says far more than. He's referring to the abundance that is in God and available to us as believers. And he says God is able to do what we ask or think. He is able to do more than we ask or think. And as a matter of fact, He is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or think. His power, which is at work in us, knows no bounds because it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And so I ask you this morning, what can't you ask of your Father? What can't you ask of God? Is it not true that we usually limit our prayers to what we think is possible? Isn't it? What does Paul pray, and why does he pray? He prays because he's concerned with God's glory. That's what he says. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. He prays that God's, the weight of his attributes, the the worth of his character, the brilliance of his countenance might be made known through Christ the head in the midst of his church. Now that's the greatest motive for prayer. So he tells us where to pray intensely, reverently, confidently, and boldly, and with God-centered and Christ-centered petitions, and we are to pray doxologically. And surely these points 
should heighten our view of prayer, the place of prayer in our lives, the importance of prayer, the wonder of prayer. But there's one more thing that is, in my view at least, even more intensely thrilling about prayer. One more. And it's this. This is the sixth and final thing. As you pray, you are to pray exploring the Trinity. Now, I'm actually taking that language from one of my former teachers, Robert Leffam, and and a friend with whom I keep in touch, who has written in his wondrous book on the Trinity, Prayer is an Exploration of the Trinity. And he's right about that. Because if you read through this prayer, you will see references to the Father and to the Son and implicit references to the Holy Spirit. And if you read all of Paul's prayers, you find that all of Paul's prayers are Trinitarian. Prayer is an exploration of the Trinity. Christianity is Trinitarian. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and in glory. Now when Dr. Lethem was writing his book on the Trinity, Sinclair Ferguson wrote him a note. And uh, in that note, he said to him something like this. Bob, have you ever considered... Have you ever considered that in the upper room, when Jesus teaches his disciples just before he goes to the cross to sacrifice himself for our sins, and he knows his disciples are going to go through their greatest grief, that when he teaches his disciples in the upper room, he doesn't teach them stress management. He teaches them about the doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah? That must mean this is fundamental, fundamental, fundamental to Christian living and even the suffering through which we go in our lives. Calvin, in his first book of the Institutes, rightly says that unless we think of the unity of God as Trinitarian, we have no real knowledge of God, only the name of God fluttering in our heads. Because the Trinity, you see, forms us as Christians. And here, in the view of your pastor, we are led to the dizzying heights of prayer. And we should be led to see prayer in a new light. In prayer, you fellowship with, you come to know, and you commune with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Will not this get you and me on our knees? We fellowship with the Father in His love. We fellowship with the Son in His grace. We fellowship with the Holy Spirit in His consolation. That is why one of the church fathers spoke of the Trinity as my trinity. He's my God. And he's triune. He's my trinity. God is my God in the fullness of all he is. And in prayer I know him personally, deeply, and experientially. Think of it this way. When you go on your knees next 
Prayer is an exploration of the Trinity. Now, is that not profound? So I come to the end, and I've got all these applications, right? In light of these things, we're to pray intensely, reverently, confidently, and boldly with God-centered petitions, doxologically, and as an exploration of the Trinity. So here are my five applications. Go pray, go pray, go pray, go pray, go pray. You want five more? (laughs) Go pray. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.